Welcome to the Sufi Reverberations podcast, where each week, God willing, you will be able to hear a poem, a story, a meditation, and a musical interlude that give expression to one Sufi's perspective concerning the mystical dimension of Islam. My name is Anab Whitehouse, and I will be your host. Although I am not a sheikh, nonetheless I did have the opportunity to spend 16 years in the company of a Sufi saint of the 20th century, and by the grace of God was able to gain a few insights into the nature of the Sufi mystical path through that association. So without further delay, let's proceed to the essential contents of this episode. The following poem is anonymous, but dates back at a minimum to 16th century Norman society. However, the poem's actual place and time of origin are unknown. I am the great sun, but you do not see me. I am your husband, but you turn away. I am the captive, but you do not free me. I am the captain, you will not obey. I am the truth, but you will not believe me. I am that city where you will not stay. I am your wife, your child, but you will leave me. I am that God to whom you will not pray. I am your counsel, but you do not hear me. I am your lover that you will betray. I am your life, but if you will not name me, seal up your soul with tears and never blame me. The title of today's short story is The Inheritance. A mother had passed away and been laid to rest. All that remained was the reading of the will. The only surviving relative was a son who had been asked to come to the office of the family lawyer on the morning following the funeral. The young man had arrived at the indicated time and was now in the reception area waiting for the lawyer to make an appearance. A few moments later the lawyer rushed into the room, apologized for being tardy, and asked the waiting man to please accompany him to an inner office. The secretary watched the two men disappear behind a door marked Private. The lawyer directed his guest to a chair on the near side of a table and headed for a seat across from the young man. Before sitting down, the lawyer took off his raincoat and hat placed them in the chair next to him, opened his attaché case, took out a manila folder, shuffled a few papers, looked briefly at the young man across from him, and then back at the papers, cleared his throat, and finally sat down. He removed some papers from the folder and passed them to his guest, saying, That is a copy of your mother's will. It's pretty straightforward, but I would draw your attention to two facets of the document. First, your mother left you the property, house, and contents which are located along the town line at the north end of our community. The precise address is noted in your copy. Secondly, there is a proviso or stipulation concerning her bequeathing of the foregoing items. More specifically, on a daily basis throughout the non-winter months, you must place a special grass, the name of the grass is specified in the text of the will, in all of the rooms of the lower floor of the house. And if you are not prepared to comply with this condition, then the property, house, and its contents are to revert to the town to be used for whatever purposes the town may deem fit, including the sale thereof. 
If you agree to accept the inheritance, then there is an agreement which you need to sign stating you have been informed about the will's contents and that you accept the conditions stated therein. If you would like a few days to think this matter over, then we could meet again on Thursday morning, for instance, but in any event no later than Friday afternoon at the close of business. And as the lawyer completed his short presentation, he leaned back in his chair, looking at the young man, awaiting some sort of response. The son's eyes skipped down through the will. Raising his head, his eyes drifted to the left of the lawyer towards a large window that looked out onto the river that ran through the town. He thought back to his youth, how he hated that chore of going out into the woods every day, early in the morning, locating the special grass his mother had shown him how to find, cutting it, bundling it, bringing it back to the house, and distributing it throughout the lower floors of the house in which he had grown up, the one which now had been bequeathed to him, well, possibly. The young man's thoughts returned to the office, and he asked, How is my compliance supposed to be monitored? The lawyer replied, Apparently you are on the honor system. However, you might want to note there is a rider of sorts following the statement of conditions in the will, which indicates that should non-compliance become evident and provable, then forfeiture to the town becomes automatic. Once more the young man's gaze went to the river as his thoughts went inward. His mother never really told him why he had to do that daily chore when he was growing up. It seemed to be one of those things which parents think will make a man of a boy, teach a boy the value of responsibility, commitment, and hard work. Or maybe to be fair to her, she had tried to explain to him why the chore was important, but being an immature kid, he never properly listened to what she was saying. In general, however, the task seemed pointless then, and it seemed even more pointless now. On the other hand, he loved his mother, and despite the many arguments which over the years had taken place concerning the chore, the young man always had completed the job. Plus, at the present time, he was, as they say, between jobs and was going to have difficulty covering the rent on his apartment for the coming month, just a week away. Another question occurred to the young man. What if I want to sell the property, he inquired. The lawyer referred the young man to the appropriate section of the will and then read aloud the relevant paragraph. Concluding, he said, So you see, the language is quite clear. You cannot sell the property, the house, or its contents. The young man smiled to himself. This was vintage mum. And while there was a certain amount of annoyance that had crept in about the way things had been set up by his mother, the son decided to accept the inheritance along with its condition and see how things went. He would try to comply with his mother's wishes. His mother was doing the son a favor, but as usual there was a catch to it, or so it always seemed. The first couple of months went fairly uneventfully. Eventually he got back into the routine of his youth, but initially the whole thing was tiring and tiresome. He went through a short period of not even minding going out and finding the special grass. In fact, for a time, he sort of came to enjoy his walks in the forest, and didn't know whether the walks in the forest were the means to, for collecting the grass, or collecting the grass became the means for taking a walk through the forest. Either way, the chore and the walk brought him a certain amount of peace and quiet, low-key happiness. There came a time, however, when he began to feel a growing resistance to and resentment towards this condition of his inheritance. 
First, this resistance began by delaying going out into the forest for as long as he could manage to keep his conscience off his back. And then a time came when he started to bring back less and less of the special grass, and then a time came when he would skip a day here and there. And finally, he stopped doing the required task altogether. The special grass had a peculiar odor to it, not exactly offensive, but not overtly pleasant either. And because the young man had gotten used to the smell, he didn't notice any difference in things until after a couple of days, the grass began to decay and produce something of a stench. He busied himself with cleaning up the decaying grass and removed it from the house altogether. About a week later, the young man had fallen asleep on the living room couch in the late afternoon. He awoke to a strange sensation. Something was crawling along his leg. Glancing down, he saw a black snake working its way towards his midsection. Alarmed and panicked, he tried to brush the snake away with his hand, and the snake bit him. Immediately, he began to feel the effects of the venom. He tried to rise and was bitten again. He managed to right himself and watched dimly as the snake slithered off in the direction of the kitchen. He started to get up, felt faint and weak, reached for a chair in order to maintain his balance, missed the chair, and toppled over onto the floor. His breathing became rapid and shallow. His skin felt feverish and pasty at the same time. The places where he had been bitten throbbed with pain, as if they were on fire. Lying there, he vaguely recalled words of his mother concerning snakes, and the special grass sprinted through his consciousness, disappearing almost as quickly as the memory of his mother speaking to him had appeared. His eyes stared blankly at the ceiling. Life had mutated into death. A short time later, the property, house, and its contents reverted to the town council for its considered disposition. Sometimes people are granted an inheritance which they do not understand or they do not honor, and as a result, in one way or another, the inheritance is taken from them due to noncompliance. The following musical interlude is entitled Inspiration Hill.
Out of the 31,536,000 and odd seconds that make up a year, you have been spending your time with the extremely small subset of seconds spanning 365 and a quarter days, which comprise the Sufi Reverberations podcast. I'm going to make you an offer you can't refuse. Well, I suppose all offers can be refused, so I'll amend my opening statement and simply say, I'm going to make you an offer that I hope you won't refuse. I would like to offer you free, and I do mean free, access to all 40 books that I have written, plus 35 pieces of floetry that were composed over the years, as well as five videos and some podcast recordings covering different topics. This is all contained in the Bridge software that is available through my website, www.anab-whitehouse.com. If you go to my website, click the Bridge software choice on the drop-down menu one option, and then discover how to download the Bridge software for free, no strings attached. My hope is that you will like what you find in the software and therefore will be willing to come back and participate in my Patreon campaign to give books to various libraries. But even if you have no interest in supporting the foregoing Patreon campaign, nonetheless, the Bridge software is still yours to have for your personal reading, listening, and viewing experience. The title of the following essay is Forgiveness. There are many times when we forgive with our words, but not with our hearts. There are times when we forgive in order to move on with our lives, but part of us is still stuck in the past. We frequently hear the declaration, I can forgive, but I won't forget. According to practitioners of the Sufi path, if one can't forget, one hasn't forgiven. The truth of the Sufi perspective is often borne out in the experience of many of us. For example, we have an argument with our spouse or children or parents or friends or workmates. Suddenly we are on a play-by-play excursion of mutual history with color commentary. Details of incidents are dredged up which a person with total recall would find a challenge to remember. The emotions of the moment have tapped into and are being fed by some deep subsurface reservoir of hurt. At the same time, the ego is always looking for an edge in situations. Consequently, the ego will resort to playing the memory card in order to try to gain the tactical high ground. We tend to remember those things which, for whatever reason, have personal significance to us. One of the reasons why we forget events or aspects of those events is because they are deemed to be trivial or unimportant in nature. We can get along without them. We tend to remember those things for which we believe we have some later use. There may be a variety of reasons why we feel retaining memories of hurtful life experiences is of value to us. One possibility why we remember such events is to help us to avoid or defend against a repetition of the pain in the future. When the structural character of current events 
begin to have a resonance with past memories involving pain, warning flags go up. The past is revisited, and we modulate our actions to reflect in an advantageous way our past experience. This sort of process is at the heart of all learning. Another possibility why we remember painful events is as a prelude to payback time. We wait, we plan, we watch, we pounce, we get satisfaction, or at least our egos do. As some people say, what goes around comes around. Payback often has a way of going and coming in cycles, with the only difference being the identity of whom is the payer and payee on any given occasion. Sometimes, in a very efficient but untidy way, we can watch this cycle spinning its wheels before our very eyes. We accomplish this by taking turns with our current protagonists. First, we are on the business end of payback, and then it is time for us to make our contribution to civilization. Another possibility concerning why we hold on to painful incidents from our lives is so we can visit from time to time the Museum of Hurt. Our egos seem to gain some sort of perverse comfort from such field trips. For example, if we are feeling sorry for ourselves, the thought may come to us, why don't we take a trip to the Museum of Hurt and run through our cavalcade of painful memories? Perhaps we just are strolling down memory lane and happen to pass the museum on our way. Something catches our attention in the window, and we go to investigate. We often end up staying longer than originally intended. In either case, we seem to derive strange sorts of reassurance and pleasure from doing this. There may be a variety of sources from which such pleasure and reassurance are derived. Some of us do this in order to reconfirm our personal identity as victims of some kind. Some of us make this journey because we feel it lends justification to our feelings of anger, envy, jealousy, or hatred. Some of us make this visit as a form of self-punishment. We consider ourselves to be losers, and as a result, we go to museum, look at its painful memories, and say, only a loser could own a collection of hurt and sadness like this. We get satisfaction from this because, at least in this judgment of ourselves, we are right about something, such as it is. We don't permit ourselves to let go of the past. Some of the reasons for not doing so are perfectly legitimate. Some of our reasons are merely rationalizations of the ego to camouflage its ploys and stratagems. There are at least two species of forgiving but not forgetting. One concerns the objective fact of a given event having taken place and therefore the reality of which cannot be denied. Such an event is now part of history. Whatever transpired occurred in a particular way at a specific time and place, within a certain context involving various individuals. One is no longer emotionally tied to this memory. One feels no sense of hurt from it. There is nothing in it for which one believes forgiveness of someone is any longer an issue. It no longer has a hallowed spot in one's museum of hurt. In fact, the memory is no longer even in the archives of the museum. However, one was a witness to and participant in that event. The main theme or themes of the event 
along with varying degrees of detail, have been extended a permanent visa in long-term memory. Initially, we may have had some reason for storing it, or it may be just one of those experiences which is stored in memory, whether we like it or not. Nonetheless, we rarely, if ever, think about the event. Moreover, it plays no part in adversely affecting or undermining or tainting our current relationships with those involved in the event. It is not a source of tension or conflict which permeates a relationship like some invisible noxious gas. There is another species of forgiving but not forgetting, which is quite different from the foregoing. This form spawns subcutaneous doubt, suspicion, distrust, resentment, and antagonism. This species of quote-unquote forgiving negatively colors, shapes, and orients practically everything we do with the individual whom we supposedly have forgiven. This kind of quote-unquote forgiveness, it's constantly bracing itself for history to be repeated. It is ever vigilant for the detection of violations of the ceasefire agreement. This sort of quote-unquote forgiveness cannot divest itself of the past. The pain is still alive and on display in the Museum of Hurt. We sometimes confuse the latter form of forgiveness with the former species of forgiveness. Sometimes we even may half convince ourselves we no longer harbor any hurt feelings and have let go of our pain. Time will tell. We might refer to the two varieties of forgiving as resolved and unresolved forgiveness. In unresolved forgiveness, matters are being orchestrated by the ego. The ego has a vested interest in keeping the hurt active. This hurt will be used as currency by the ego to subsidize one or more of its attempts to exploit subsequent situations for tactical advantage or in order to exact revenge. For example, we claim to have forgiven someone. We later become involved in some sort of difficulty with that person and immediately the mind is flooded with the images and scenes of past hurt. The energy and feelings associated with these memories are then diverted to underwrite the construction of barriers of ill will, suspicion, and so on in the current situation. In resolved forgiveness, each situation is considered on its merits, independently from whatever may have happened previously. If one has forgiven someone in a fully resolved manner, one is not flooded with memories of past indiscretions by the same person with whom one currently is having problems. One is focused on what is happening now, not on what has happened then. One is not prejudging the situation in the colored light of the past. Sometimes we forgive others not because those people have done anything to us which requires forgiveness on our part, but as a kind of proof to ourselves that we are right and they are wrong. In such cases, we forgive in order to reinforce our ego's image of itself as occupying in all situations the moral high ground. The thinking such as it is goes sometimes like the following. Only a person who has been wronged in some way has cause to forgive. I am forgiving someone, therefore I must have been wronged in some way. 
In reality, this tactic is a preemptive strike by the ego to divert attention away from its own culpability in the matters at hand. If I forgive you before you forgive me, then from the perspective of the ego, this is tantamount to saying, using the logic of the previous paragraph, that you were the transgressor in the situation, not me. Our egos forgive to show a moral superiority to others it doesn't possess. Our egos forgive to demonstrate qualities of tolerance and magnanimity of which it is bereft. There are occasions when our egos forgive to place others in our debt. At the right time, we present the invoice for our original forgiveness and demand payment. On other occasions, our egos forgive because, at least for the present time, not forgiving is getting in the way of something else we want. We start our current negotiations with an act of forgiveness, a goodwill gesture as it were, and then proceed on to the main items on the agenda. Forgiveness can be good for the business of the ego. Besides, if things don't work out, we always can retract our forgiveness, claiming self-righteously that the other person was negotiating in bad faith and therefore didn't really deserve our forgiveness after all. The practitioners of the Sufi path seek to actualize resolved forgiveness. Indeed, the Sufi masters are like exemplars of all that resolved forgiveness involves. When Sufi sheikhs have been wronged and forgive those who have transgressed against them, then God willing the incident is never mentioned again, either externally or internally. The slate is wiped clean as if nothing ever had appeared there. There is not even the minutest lingering chalk dust of resentment or irritation. In this respect, the Sufi master is merely reflecting the quality of divinity which proceeds in the same manner with respect to transgressions. In fact, God is the one who makes resolved forgiveness on the human level possible. To truly forgive in a resolved fashion is divinity in action. However, according to the practitioners of the Sufi path, we are under an obligation to strive for resolved forgiveness until it comes as a gift from God. We are transgressing against God all the time. God is quite prepared to extend forgiveness to us in the fully resolved sense. The spiritual etiquette of the situation requires us to ask in an official manner through petitionary prayer for such forgiveness. This spiritual etiquette further requires that we make a sincere undertaking to God to not commit the transgression again. Committing oneself to such an undertaking does not guarantee we will not make the same mistake in the future. Yet, if we do falter, God is prepared to forgive us again and again. However, we cannot take God's forgiveness as a license. There are limits beyond which we transgress at our peril. Indeed, continuing to transgress in the same way is a sign our repentance was not sincere when we sought God's forgiveness and claimed we would never again commit such transgressions. Just as there is unresolved forgiveness, so too there is unresolved repentance. Unresolved repentance is when forgiveness has been uttered by our mouths, but the desire for transgression remains in our heart. Sometimes, even when we have not realized our mistake, 
and have not asked for forgiveness, God forgives us. God is so forgiving that the flimsiest of excuses often are offered by God on our behalf as a reason for forgiving us. The Sufi masters reflect this divine quality as well. They are constantly seeking forgiveness from God for our transgressions, both known and unknown, while making excuses on our behalf for why we should not be taken to task by God for our mistakes. To seek to realize, resolve forgiveness in our lives is an opportunity for spiritual growth. God orchestrates situations so we will be wronged by others and be faced with the struggle of whether or not to forgive sincerely and fully. The more we are, by God's grace, able to struggle towards becoming disentangled from the problems surrounding and permeating unresolved forgiveness, the greater is the likelihood that, God willing, spiritual benefit will accrue to us. The more we are able, with God's help, to make resolved forgiveness a stable part of our way of interacting with other people, the better will things be for everyone involved. Unresolved and resolved forgiveness both are inherently contagious. When we interact with other people through the agenda of unresolved forgiveness, there is a very strong tendency for the tension, conflict, antagonism, and suspicions which are part and parcel of that condition to spread to others with whom we interact. On the other hand, when we interact with others through the quality of resolved forgiveness, there is a strong set of forces present which help induce others to reciprocate in kind. For example, when we encounter someone who treats us with genuine, sincere, resolved forgiveness in relation to our transgressions against them, we begin to feel our grievances are trivial and petty and not worthy things to hold on to. Consequently, once we taste the experience of being forgiven in this complete manner, we often have a desire to extend the same manner of treatment to others. The prophets first contracted this syndrome through their dealings with God. Saints picked it up from the prophets. Present-day Sufi masters are trying their best to infect us, God willing, with their spirit of resolved forgiveness. You have been listening to the Sufi Reverberations podcast. I hope you will join me next week for a new episode of this program. May peace be your companion. Mm-hmm.